Cerebral is an online mental health service that offers prescription medication, counseling, and therapy for anxiety, depression, ADHD, insomnia, and more. Cerebral is one of the few services that provides prescription medication online through a licensed provider and ships medication straight to your door. You can schedule sessions based on what's most convenient for you, and you don't have to wait weeks to be seen. And BuzzFeed Daily listeners can receive 65% off your first month of medication management and care counseling at Cerebral.com slash BuzzFeed. Go to Cerebral.com slash BuzzFeed for 65% off your first month. Join Cerebral today on their mission to make quality mental health care accessible and affordable for all. Enjoy basketball, soccer, and all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using bonus code CHAMPION and your first wager is risk-free up to $1,000. Plus, when you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, player props, and daily boosted odds specials. Download the BetMGM app today or go to BetMGM.com and enter bonus code CHAMPION and place your first wager risk-free up to $1,000. Now you're winning with the king of sportsbooks. Visit betmgm.com for terms and conditions. 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. and Virginia only. New customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable free bets or site credit. Free bets expire seven days from issuance. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700. Being a real estate agent isn't about listing houses. It's about connecting to people. I need to find new buyers every day. So I promote my listings using radio commercials from iHeartAdBuilder.com. Now every time I have an open house, it's a full house. A custom radio ad from iHeartAdBuilder is the fast, affordable way to drive customers to your business. Put the power of radio to work for you. Get started now at iHeartAdBuilder.com. Jennifer Hudson just thinks the Cats movie was misunderstood. New Jeopardy host Mike Richards is facing backlash for sexist remarks he made in the past. And Rolling Stone's Alan Sepinwall discusses the long-awaited return of Brooklyn Nine-Nine and the complicated task of making a cop comedy in the era of defund the police. It's August 19th, 2021. Hey friends, I'm Casey Rackham. And I'm Stephen LeConte. Welcome to BuzzFeed Daily. Oh, Stephen, I watched a wild video today that I wish I had not seen. <laughs> okay, what, what was the video, Casey? Okay, so it's this friend group that basically has this wild spreadsheet of what everyone's income is, how many PTO days they have off, how much money they'd be willing to spend on a vacation, and like a bunch of other things. But the kicker is they are all massively rich. Like I'm talking about the lowest person is making 125K a year oh and God. his nickname is broke bobby okay so i saw broke bobby <laughs> trending on twitter is that what was going yes, on that is broke bobby broke bobby who makes so much money is i guess the poorest person in this specific friend group i mean i guess the concept of wanting everyone to be comfortable and like when planning and spending money is nice but probably the way they went about it is not relatable <laughs> Yeah, so basically they make this spreadsheet so that they know like what each other's general social budgets are yes. or something. Uh-huh. Okay. Mm. And poor broke Bobby only has $125,000 to play with. Uh-huh. Poor broke okay. Bobby. <laughs> what was the top line? Like who oh, made I think the it was most $6 million. Dollars. 
Okay. I think that a lot of them are gamblers and that might be. So <laughs> I'm not sure if Bobby is. Bobby just might not be as good at gambling as the rest. <laughs> okay. Well, if any of those boys are listening to this podcast and are single, um, call me. I'm not above it. <laughs> All right. So moving on. If you just couldn't get into the movie version of Cats, Jennifer Hudson thinks you might just need to wait a few years for a rewatch. She recently told Total Film that while, quote, it's unfortunate that it was misunderstood, she thinks, quote, later down the line, people will see it differently. And, you know, regardless of the backlash the movie received, Jennifer says she's still very proud and grateful to have been able to play Grizabella the Glamour Cat. I I mean, Casey, (laughs) on the one hand, did I see Cats not once but twice in theaters? Yes, I did. It's a horrible movie. It brought me such joy. So on the one hand, I I don't think she's wrong. But like, if we can just be realistic for a second, the the CGI in the movie looks (laughs) wild. And the fact that she thinks it's going to age better. (laughs) It is not. I think one of my favorite, like, vibe of the tweets was like when her quote says it was just misunderstood and people quote tweet it and go no I understood it (laughs) yeah no I I understood it perfectly well and I I did love it for what it was you know I think and I you know Taylor Swift has talked about this too I think that they had a lot of fun making the movie Mm. and I think it was like a really exciting creative process and I'm sure that that having the experience of making it you're gonna of course have this bias when you see it you're gonna want to believe that it is as good as it felt and and also on top of that i think like going in a lot of like the producers and stuff were just like oscar winner oscar winner so they probably did have that bias and everyone else is like no (laughs) you know here's one where i will give jennifer hudson credit for one thing Mm. which is that in in the wake of all of the backlash i remember that james corden and rebel wilson like really made fun of the Mm. movie and like about like a lot of the graphics and stuff. And then some of the artists behind the movie came forward and were like, hey, like that's our hard work that we spent years on. So I at least respect the fact that Jennifer Hudson is at least like standing up for her crew of people that helped make that that, movie. That is good, all things considered. (laughs) Yes, there's dignity in that. Um, Well, let's move on to something with um, less dignity. If you needed more proof that Jeopardy should have just listened to its fans and hired LeVar Burton as its host, look no further. So Mike Richards, the Jeopardy executive producer who was recently named Alex Trebek's official successor, addressed sexist remarks he made in 2013 and 2014 on his now deleted podcast, The Random Show. By the way, random is spelled dumb like D-U-M-B. Brilliant comedy. The Ringer reported that Richards asked his female assistant and his female co-host if they'd ever taken, quote, booby pictures and referred to his co-host as a booth hoe and booth slut. I think in this case, booth is like the audio booth that they were recording. Okay, good, because I genuinely did not know what that was. So he's calling these women that work for him like hoes and sluts um, on a public platform. Um, In an apology, Richard says, quote, it is humbling to confront a terribly embarrassing moment of misjudgment, thoughtlessness, and insensitivity from nearly a decade ago. Looking back now, there is no excuse, of course, for the comments I made on this podcast, and I am deeply sorry. Man, this quote just like seems like such a freaking cop out for me. Like it just clearly like someone from ABC wrote this. Does he feel sorry? Yeah. I don't know. 
And, you know, look, to the degree that, like, sometimes we can say, oh, you know, a comments that a person made when they were really young, if they've grown and evolved, I think it's worth calling out that he was in his late 30s when he said these things, which means, like, he was a full-grown adult with a very established media career. He had a real platform here. This isn't people dragging up things that were better left in the dust. This is, like, very much a part of his current media career that he said these things. I also just want to say, like, as a side note, I mean, the Jeopardy producers had one job, which was to just pick a host that like, you know, was smart and that engaged with the audience well. And they ended up picking two people, one of whom was their own co-worker, this producer who has these sexist comments. And the other one, in the middle of a global pandemic, they chose someone who has a history of anti-vax uh, comments. It's just... They made some choices. <laughs> They they made some capital C choices. <laughs> I would like to call out that it's not too late to change those choices. I think you're incredibly correct. That's another capital C. <laughs> well, let's move on. After a very long pandemic, a global Black Lives Matter movement, and more than one cancellation, Brooklyn Nine-Nine is finally back after what seems like an eons-long hiatus. The popular police sitcom, which tells the story of the 99th Precinct, had a lot to catch up on. It's also now faced with a tough task, how to address through humor a reckoning over police abuse of people of color and a pandemic that changed the world as we know it. Here's a taste of what that might sound like from the show's season eight premiere. Question, what is the number one problem with the coronavirus? Mass death, economic collapse, the way the disease has exposed the systemic injustice at the core of American life. Well, yes, obviously those, but after that, it's how to high-five your friends while staying six feet apart. But now the world can stop their worrying because we have created the COVID-5. With this machine, you can execute any high-five your heart desires. But it may not be quite so business as usual as the show's cast of characters resume their jobs for its final season. Rolling Stone's chief TV critic Alan Sepinwall joins us now to talk more about the complicated return of a cop comedy in a world rocked by anti-police protests. Hi, Alan. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. So, you know, it was a long hiatus. <laughs> how did the show catch us up with the characters in the present day, considering how much the world has changed since season seven? Well, they did a clever thing, which was they picked up not long after the season had left off. So you had like a little teaser set early in COVID times and Jake and Boyle are just trying to figure out how to do a high five without <laughs> infecting one another. Uh, and then Rosa Diaz walks in and says, I'm quitting the department over obviously what was happening in the news at the time. And then they jumped forward to the present day, which among other things allowed the characters to not be masked, but also give some distance from George Floyd and all the other things that they're trying to deal with. You know, since it started, Brooklyn Nine-Nine has been like a very beloved comedy about cops. And it seems like nobody really questioned the ethics of a show like that until the death of George Floyd. Did the show try to reckon with the darker sides of policing in its previous seasons? Like, was there any larger message about cops? Because I definitely know that the character of Jake was positioned as, you know, quote, one of the good ones. There were some, definitely. They did a very good episode uh, where the Terry Crews character is racially profiled by a white cop. And he and Andre Brower's character talked about what to do about that. And Andre Brower throughout the run of the show has talked about the challenges of being a black man in the NYPD as well as a gay man. So it's not like the show was blind to it and it did what it, it acknowledged what it could or what it felt it could up to that point. But certainly it was not ready for 
like public perception of the profession of the show to turn as much as it did. Right. And it almost seems odd that Brooklyn Nine-Nine was and still is very popular among progressives. What do you chalk that up to? Is it just like an ignorance and a blindness that many have had until now? It's a big if, but if you can leave the police work aside, it's a very progressive show. It has one of the most racially inclusive casts in television. The characters themselves are all, for the most part, sort of unabashedly liberal. The show deals with social causes throughout. And its depiction of policing is sort of what we would like policing to be, for the most part. So it was, it, it was very easy to understand why it would be taken up by so many progressive viewers. And then, you know, there sort of came a point where, where the blinders came off for all of us, I think. So, you know, this latest season was produced during and after the summer of 2020 as BLM protests against the murder of George Floyd were in full force. How has the show chosen so far or what you've heard or read to directly address some of the problems that Floyd's murder and the Black Lives Matter protests brought to life? Well, the most obvious one is obviously having Rosa, one of the most beloved core characters, quit the NYPD and say she quit specifically because she couldn't live anymore with being part of a system that she found to be fundamentally flawed in this way. They've had other characters like Jake deal with the fact that like citizens really hate him now and just sort of mistrust him um, and sort of struggling with the misperception of that. And they've done a number of stories, both in the episodes that aired last week and in some of the ones coming up, uh, featuring the head of the police union played by John C. McGinley from Scrubs and sort of using him as a symbol for the different ways in which police reform is so difficult to enact because you have all these entrenched institutions that just like want to protect their cops and put up the big blue wall, as I think they call it. Mm. Well, we'll be right back. We've got more with Rolling Stone's Alan Seppenwall after the break. Chief-It. We're tired of hearing new year, new you, fat-burning secrets, and lose weight fast. The only thing you need to lose is self-doubt. The body you're in deserves respect, love, and support. Support you're not getting from your current sports bra. It's time to experience the only sports bra that actually does its job and outperforms the most popular brands on the market. It's time to feel real support from SheFit. Save $10 today at SheFit.com slash 2022. This is Roxanne Gay, host of the Roxanne Gay Agenda, the bad feminist podcast of your dreams. Now, what is the Roxanne Gay Agenda, you might ask? Well, it's a podcast where I'm going to speak my mind about what's on my mind, and that could be anything. Every week, I will be in conversation with an interesting person who has something to say. We're going to talk about feminism, race, writing in books and art, food, pop culture, and yes, politics. I start each show with a recommendation. Really, I'm just going to share with you a movie or a book or maybe some music or a comedy set, something that I really want you to be aware of and maybe engage with as well. Listen to the Luminary Original Podcast, The Roxanne Gay Agenda, the bad feminist podcast of your dreams, every Tuesday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
The NFL playoffs are here, and the Super Bowl is right around the corner. You can follow the action like a fan, or you can prep like a scout if you listen to the award-winning Move the Six podcast. The show is hosted by me, Daniel Jeremiah, and my partner, Bucky Brooks. The two of us bring knowledge from careers as NFL talent scouts to the podcast world so fans can watch and understand the nuances of the game like never before. After the Super Bowl, it's draft season. If you want to go in-depth on this year's prospects and learn what makes the top players stand out, there's no better podcast than Move the Sticks. We'll break down film from the professional and college games so you can know which player to look out for when the football season returns next fall. You'll learn a ton about the NFL, and I promise we'll make it fun along the way. We'll have several new episodes dropping each week, and you don't want to miss a single one. Subscribe now and listen to the Move the Sticks podcast on the iHeartRadio app on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. We're talking with Rolling Stone's chief TV critic, Alan Sepinwall, about the return of Brooklyn Nine-Nine and how its final season grapples with making a cop comedy in the era of defund the police. So considering the fact that this is a network sitcom, does it truly even have a fair shot of getting this right? Do you think it's fair to ask Brooklyn Nine-Nine, a sitcom, for a perfect take on our current complicated reality? I don't really think it is. And I feel bad because I do think that the show comes from a really well-meaning place. And it's been one of my favorite shows for a very long time. And I think if like it had ended right before George Floyd, as I think it was originally planned to, you know, it would have gone off into, into the distance and people would think more fondly of it. But instead they had already ordered this last season and they, they have to deal with it. And it's just tonally, it's a lot because the issues at hand are really complex. They're really hard to like weave jokes around. Like you could have an episode where Andre Brower, who's one of our great dramatic actors alive, talks about all the things that are wrong with policing, but that would not be a funny episode. And so ultimately that becomes a problem. And we're supposed to still admire and like our characters, all but one of whom are still members of the NYPD. So I'm not sure what they can do here. No, I think it's tough. And I think, you know, maybe there's more of a case for the dramas taking this on their shoulders than this sitcom. And, you know, so I do want to know, looking at the broader landscape, how have other cop shows like SWAT, Law & Order SVU, Blue Bloods, etc., grappled with how to depict law enforcement in light of such social unrest? It's been a mixed bag. I think some of them have done well. Weirdly, one of the better ones was uh, NCIS New Orleans, which did a whole bunch of storylines where Scott Bakula started questioning how law enforcement worked and, you know, for their trouble, they got canceled at the end of the season. I think the problem is there are so many of these shows and being police and the idea that the police are fundamentally heroic is baked into the genre. It's really hard to get around that. You can certainly make a new show that like interrogates, you know, the value and the meaning of police work at this point, but to sort of try to work that in and retrofit it into these shows that have been around for years, or in the case of Law & Order SVU, for decades, I'm just not sure that's possible. Yeah, you know, I'm a really big procedural fan. I always have been. I watch a lot of them. I grew up on a lot of them. But it is tough because watching this past year, or, you know, sometimes it used to be, for some reason, a comfort to watch reruns of Law & Order SVU or Criminal Minds. And now this past year, I've had difficulty watching some episodes because of how heroic they're portrayed. And so I'm like, I wonder, do you think there will ever be a point where the cop shows die out or at least become way less popular than they are now? I find it tough to believe, but... I don't know, because I just think that there's there is so much of a built-in audience and I think that there is still, you know, we're a very divided country and I think a lot of people obviously reacted with horror, rightly so, 
to what happened to George Floyd and and these other situations. And then there's been other people who've just sort of brushed it off and they just want to see, you know, Stabler and Benson and all of the other heroes come back and do their thing. But Casey, I'm with you. It's It's been hard for me. I used to watch tons and tons of cop shows. I watch almost none now. It's basically Brooklyn Nine-Nine and reruns of Columbo, which, you know, where it's like he's one detective, he doesn't carry a gun, and his whole thing is like going after rich and powerful white people who have, you know, concocted like perfect little murders. So that feels like a whole separate thing from what we're dealing with. Okay, so I'm curious. If we base things on what we've seen so far, where do you see the arc of Brooklyn Nine-Nine's final season headed? I wonder about that. I mean, I've seen, I think, half of the season with 10 episodes, and there's definitely a lot of Rose in there, and there's definitely a lot of talk of trying to reform the police. And Dan Gore, the co-creator of the show, previously worked on Parks and Recreation, and that was a very fundamentally optimistic show that tried to look at different ways to fix government. And, And they were able to do that within a comedic context. And the last season, that show leaped forward in time, and they were sort of, you know, showing all the different ways that Leslie Nope was changing the world and making government better. And maybe that's something that they will try to do here. They'll prevent present a more utopian version of policing, uh, because it feels like it's either that or Jake and the others eventually all follow Rose out the door. And I don't think they're going to end it that way. Yeah. You know, on that note, I know a lot of fans online were saying that the final season should take place in a post office. And it was sort of hard to parse out, like, if that was a joke suggestion or like actually kind of a serious suggestion. I'm sure. But if it changed by the fan, do you think showrunners should have considered taking a route like that? Like just taking these characters that everyone loves and saying, like, we're not going to do the police thing at all anymore. At first, I thought it was kind of a joke myself. But then watching these episodes, which have good moments in them, but a lot of really tricky ones. I think, like, whatever, if they move them into a post office, you've got five minutes at the start of the episode where the audience goes, wait a minute, what's going on here? What is happening? And then after that, they're just watching Jake and Boyle and Terry and Holt and everyone else doing funny things. And that's really ultimately that matters. I've loved this show for a long time. It was one of my great bits of comfort food. But, like, almost none of what I love about it depends on them being police officers. It depends on them being well-written characters played by really talented actors. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, I think that's definitely the vibe from fans across the board. Well, I'm definitely excited to see how this final season goes. Alan, thank you so much for joining us today. Anytime, guys. All right, that's it for today. Come back and join us tomorrow. And remember, it's not too late to hire LeVar Burton Jeopardy. Not too late at all. Be sure to subscribe to BuzzFeed Daily on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you go for your sound stories. And please take the time to leave us a rating and a review. It helps us figure out what you like about the show versus what you love about the show. And remember to come back for more of what you love about BuzzFeed coming to you daily. If dog people made dog food, it wouldn't be sold in a 50-pound bag in the hardware aisle by the shoe polish. It would actually be food. It would be made with real, fresh meat and veggies gently cooked to preserve their nutritional value. You know, like food. The Farmer's Dog was created by dog people who cook and deliver fresh, healthy food. Try the Farmer's Dog and get fresh, pre-portioned meals tailored to your dog's needs. Tell us about your dog, build your plan, and get 50% off at thefarmersdog.com slash listen. That's thefarmersdog.com slash listen. This is Roxanne Gay, the host of the Roxanne Gay Agenda, the bad feminist podcast of your dreams. Each week I talk to an interesting person about feminism, race, writing in books and art, food, pop culture, and yes, politics. We can't escape politics. 
Listen to the Luminary Original Podcast, The Roxanne Gay Agenda, every Tuesday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, hello. Hey, I don't know if you heard, but my podcast, Checking In, has been nominated for the NAACP Image Award in the category of Outstanding Lifestyle and Self-Help Podcast. I'm grateful for the nomination. I, I almost didn't even do a podcast because I was just wondering, there are thousands of podcasts out there and why is my voice needed? But a nomination from the NAACP lets me know that um, I made the right choice. And I encourage you to do, don't worry if there are thousands of something out that you want to do. No, Nobody has your sauce. So listen, you can still vote. Go to vote.naacpimageawards.net. You have until February 5th, um, 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And please listen to my podcast. We're a part of the Black Effect Podcast Network on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for checking in. 